You're listening to The Last Thing I Saw. My name is Nicholas Herpold, and I'm an editor and a writer. For my latest conversation about movies, I took a trip to Venice, Italy. Well, I didn't go there myself, but I did the next best thing and talked to a critic attending the Venice International Film Festival. Jonathan Romney is someone I've had the great pleasure of working with and reading for years. Here, he gives us a terrific account of his favorite films from Venice. That includes the newest films from Pedro Almodovar, Frederick Wiseman, Gianfranco Rossi, and Kyoshi Kurosawa, plus highlights such as the provocative New Order, Soviet-era historical drama Dear Comrades, the period romance The World to Come, Regina King's One Night in Miami, Indian music drama The Disciple, and the giant fly comedy Mandibles. That's not even a full list, and it all amounts to a jam-packed preview of movies to look out for down the road. Please note, because of the long-distance connection, the audio volume may vary. Welcome back to The Last Thing I Saw. Uh, For this episode of the podcast, we have a special festival edition, specifically a kind of dispatch from the Venice Film Festival, which is the first film festival, I guess the first you know, large scale major film festival to be taking place in person since the the plague. Uh, so I thought it would be especially appropriate to get someone on the ground. And ordinarily, I would be there myself as well. But uh, absent that, we'll, we'll have his first person account with critic Jonathan Romney. Welcome, Jonathan. Hi. <laughs> Um, yes, and I have to say, you are you are much missed here, as are uh, all our American colleagues and colleagues from other parts of the world who couldn't make it here. And, you know, the weird thing, no one was quite expecting it, but Venice, you know, has really happened this year. I think people were thinking, oh, well, is it going to happen? And is it going to happen in a way which is so watered down that it's not going to re- feel like a festival? And, you know, for the first couple of days, people were getting to grips with the new system because there are, I believe, a third fewer press than usual. You have to book your tickets in advance. So everyone immediately starts booking everything 74 hours exactly in advance. You know, you have to sit in a specific seat and, you know, only alternate seats in the theatre. And it's been quiet around the festival area. But Apart from that, you know, it's worked incredibly well. I mean, the festival organisers have pulled it together, you know, with absolute rigour. And everyone's wearing masks in the in the casino compound. You know, the system is quite strict, but actually the feeling is very good. You know, everyone, the ushers, the security guards, uh, very relaxed, very cool. It's just a very nice feeling. So to add to that, the fact that everyone is just really happy and relieved and you know those of us who are here you know we feel very privileged to be here but the best thing of course is that the films have turned out to be really good you know it's it's mixed there are some banalities but all in all you know the good things stand out and they are really good and they're making people just very glad they came is this the first time you you're seeing movies in 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 an actual cinema or have you already been doing that for a little while in in london no, I've only th- seen two movies in the cinema. Uh, the f- the film which actually took me back into the cinema was Richard Linklater's Way to Go Bernadette, which I saw in Barcelona. And, and there were only four people, you know, in the whole theatre, whereas here at some screenings, there have been just a handful of people, you know, like some late night screenings. But 
in general, it's nice to have those empty seats and space to breathe and not to have to queue. And and it's just great seeing things on the really beautiful big screens they have here. I'm, I'm eager to hear about your, your highlights so far. Uh, what's been your, your, your favorite film, your strongest film you've seen so far? Maybe I'll start just telling you literally the last thing I saw, which I came out of about half an hour ago, is an Italian film. And in general, the Italian films in competition, as well as the opening film, have not been great. But one thing which stood out, the best Italian fiction film I've seen is by a director I, I don't know. I think it's a second film. She's called Emma Dante. She's one of eight women in competition this year, so four times more than last. And it's called the Macaluso Sisters. And it's a very, uh, you know, quite flamboyant, eccentric, idiosyncratic, and very kind of felt drama about five young sisters that sort of take the family through childhood to adulthood to old age and it's about uh, siblinghood and it's about time passing and memory and loss and you know but it's very very imagistic and it's very fresh in a way I wasn't expecting you know it starts out feeling like it, it might be a little sentimental but you know it's she's a very fresh voice and you know I'm really looking forward to seeing more from her. Yeah, it was it was interesting that this year the festival did open with a, you know an Italian feature. I mean that that felt just that felt like an important gesture of some sort. Yeah, and I think it's really nice, you know, given that in previous years so much on the festival, particularly open opening nights, has hung on you know the big American names, you know, and last year all the flash around, a lot of excitement around Joker, and in the past, you know, things like uh, you know the Darren Aronofsky films, for example, or uh, Damien Chazelle. Um, I think it made political and cultural sense to have an Italian opening night ties which I didn't think was great. I mean, it's it, it's actually very banal and it kind of collapses in on itself. But I think the appeal for an Italian audience particularly is to see some very familiar Italian acting names like Alba Rofacher and Laura Morante just kind of, you know, acting their souls out. Probably, you know, a sufficiently strong cultural statement to make Italians feel Venice is authentically their festival. Who are you seeing or who is around there? Because I, I know there's often a certain a certain scrum of, of people between screenings there. That's like uh, usually critics and, and right, right around the theaters. But of course, also, you know, the Italian public are, are going to see screenings there as well. Uh, and then there's the red carpet as, aspect. What is the nature of all of that now? Uh, it feels less of a public screening. I mean, there are the public screenings. I haven't been to many of the public screenings. I've been main, mainly to the press shows. I mean, one of the peculiar things this year is they decided to build a wall. I believe it's very fashionable in the world at the moment. But this has a different function. They built a wall outside the main theatre so that the red carpet uh, is kind of weirdly cordoned off. And I know it's happening, but it's... You know, it's part of the uh, the health regime. Yeah. So, uh, what were some others that you were looking forward to, and, and what have you liked of what you've seen? Well, weirdly, the hot attraction here, you know, the absolute hot ticket, is a thirty-minute short by Pedro Almodovar, starring Tilda Swinton, and it's a complete one-off. It's called The Human Voice. It's his free adaptation of uh, a Jean Cocteau play 
which is famously filmed by uh, Roberto Rossellini with Anna Magnani. And uh, what Almodovar has done with this is, I mean, he's made it absolutely 100% an Almodovar film. He's actually used it in uh, some of his films before the play turns up in, I believe it's Law of Desire, but I think it's alluded to somewhere else. But he makes it 100% an Almodovar piece with one of those beautiful, elaborate Almodovar sets. But also it's Brechtian. Uh, because Tilda Swinton is performing the play in a very kind of uh, consciously theatrical manner on a soundstage in a variety of extraordinary clothes in the company of a dog and with uh, the roof removed, the ceiling removed with a camera looking down on her. So on one hand, you know, it's absolutely 100% Almodovar referring to themes and images from other films of his, referring also to um, there is uh, a Renaissance painting in the background. You know, so that recalls uh, Fassbinder. But at the same time, it's very much a Tilda Swinton film. And the weird thing, I mean, it's an incredible vehicle for her because we don't normally see her doing big roles these days. She's tended to choose kind of, you know, eccentric supporting uh, roles which let her do that kind of, uh, you know, Lon Chaney routine she does so brilliantly. But here she's really, really acting. And it also echoes some of the uh, performance artwork that she's done in the past. So, you know, it's an incredibly rich, imagistic, very sort of tender and very crafted film. And uh, and it's wonderful. I think, you know, Almodovar fans and Tilda Swinton fans will be in absolute rapture. Yeah, that was definitely something I was, I was curious about. I have to say the other outstanding performer um, who you can't really ignore because she's, she's in two competition films and she's fantastic in both is Vanessa Kirby, who people will know from The Crown. So she's in the uh, Cornell Mondrucho film Pieces of a Woman, which I didn't much care for, but you know it's an interesting kind of rather elaborate vaguely Cassavetes-like psychodrama with Shia LaBeouf, you know, being, you know, reliably chest-beating and at a rare sighting of Elaine Stritch. Um, but Vanessa Kirby is fantastic in it, particularly in a kind of 30-minute single-take sequence about uh, the delivery of a baby. And she's, you know, she just has a very, very sort of strong and unnerving presence in that. But the film she's in, which is absolutely extraordinary, one of my favourite films in the festival, is the second feature by the Norwegian-born director Mona Fastvold, whose film The World to Come resembles certain things we've seen. You know, it, it made me think of the period pieces of Kelly Reichardt. It also made me think uh, somewhat of Terence Davis in its austerity. Uh, But it's absolutely its own thing. And it's a 19th century rural drama about uh, the frontier world. I believe it's uh, upstate New York. And it's about two married women who fall in love and have a very passionate relationship uh, to their husband's uh, alarm one of her husbands played by Casey Affleck who who's very good and very nuanced and very quiet but the two women are played by Vanessa Kirby and Catherine Waterston and, and Catherine Waterston um, is the one who is recording everything in a diary and in a voiceover uh, a very beautifully written very literary voiceover 
And, you know, it's a somewhat literary film, and I know that some people are allergic to voiceovers as a point of principle, but it works beautifully here, and the literary language is as rich and, and as fluent as, and as suggestive as, if you remember, The Lighthouse last year, mm. which did that extraordinary riff on um, Herman Melville. And um, it's, um, it has that sort of uh, richness. But the two performances are a really extraordinary, very, you know, with just a, a, an extraordinary tension and sensitivity, and there's a real emotional pull to it. The photography is wonderful. Uh, you know, you really get the sense of this incredibly bleak, inhospitable rural landscape. But the other thing about it that's um, quite remarkable is uh, the score. You know, it's not strictly, um, you know, a kind of jazz or improvised score, but it's it has jazz and improv musicians uh, on the soundtrack. It's composed by Daniel Bloomberg, and they're just these extraordinary moments. There's a scene with a blizzard, which is just kind of like, you know, free-blowing improv, uh, but it absolutely... It's totally elemental. It doesn't uh, seem any way out of sync with the time. Uh, it's beautifully shot by uh, Andrei Shematov. And um, it's uh, very, very beautifully written by Ron Hansen, who you'll know is a novelist of uh, the assassination of Jesse James, and Jim Shepard. And I think it's going to really put Mona Fastfold on the map uh, as a very, very individual and confident and poetic director yeah that's that's a film uh, that i actually got a chance to get a glimpse of as well and what i liked about it was the commitment to the to the detail uh, you know for example in in her journal which it just goes on these long almost paragraph long uh, voiceovers from it um and there's a sense of maybe uh, an artistic voice a writerly voice uh behind um Catherine Watterson's character as well that you know that's that's part of her expression and and we get full access to to that journal um in in those voiceovers um and then you know they really are intent on kind of confining us to the world of the farmhouse that that she lives in and all of that that means. Um, so, you know, when there's a snowstorm, you really get the sense that you're stuck there and uh, you're even stuck there when there's no so, no snowstorm. That's part of part of what her, her feelings of, of being kind of unfulfilled are. Um, and then also like little details, I, I like I, they, they kind of make a point at one point of I think I think it's Casey Affleck just going at an apple with one of those old, you know, like egg beater type things. Um, so, I you know, I like little little touches uh, like that. I'm always interested in, in seeing um, Catherine Waterston as, as, as well. She just has a furtive charisma of some sort, if that makes sense. Exactly. And actually, um, her charisma in the film, uh, you know, her character is very introspective and introverted, and it plays so beautifully against Vanessa Kirby, who who can do very kind of muted, seductive looks like like no one else. I mean, it, it, it's really wonderful. It's a very different performance from the Mondrusho film, but, um, you know, absolutely brilliant. So um, that's... The World to Come, definitely a film that people will be seeing yeah. down the road. Another fantastic second feature in competition, also with extraordinary music, and it's about music. It's The Disciple by uh, Chaitanya 
Tamani. Uh, it's an Indian film about a devotee of Indian classical music who is uh, a singer specializing uh, in a particular form of rag. And, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of Indian classical music, although by the end of the film, you do somewhat. But basically, it's about an apprenticeship which is seeking after perfection. And I think we know from the beginning that it's never going to quite attain it. But but it's a very beautifully controlled, rather austere film. Um, and actually, one of the things about it is, in a way, you think, well, this is Indian cinema in a very traditional uh, Indian art cinema in that uh, Satyajit Rai vein, uh, slow and pensive and very much rooted in the past. But actually, there are some extraordinary moments which confront you know, the seriousness and the concentration and the austerity of this form of music with the Indian phenomenon of X-Factor-style TV talent shows and what happens when, you know, talented young musicians get on the show and then they get surrounded by the lights and the dancers and, you know, the lyrics and the glitter. And so a film that seems very much of the past and about tradition and about a traditional form of cinema actually proves to be incredibly vibrant and fresh and of the moment and and it's one of the films uh two or three films that, that i've seen here that i most want to see again it also uses the slowness of the music it weaves the feel of the music into the film even when you're not actually hearing the music so there's an extraordinary sequence that runs throughout the film which is uh the hero riding a motor scooter through town at night listening to the preachings of, you know, his musical guru. And, you know, we hear her voice um, as the hero's hearing it, and we see the town unfold round him at night in this absolute isolation. And it, it is the most wonderfully crafted film. And I think, you know, an incredibly mature one. You know, I think maturity and and some sort of wisdom about, you know, the the virtue, but also the folly of attaining to perfection. Um, I think that's something that really characterizes this film. So that's a film that I think will also have a, a further festival life. I think for one thing, it's in the New York Film Festival. Another thing I, I, I think people will be curious about is how does a film uh, like that or, or any film make a splash in these kind of circumstances. And I think there might be one movie that might create a certain certain little splash. You want to talk about New Order? Yeah. So this is Nuevo Orden, New Order, the new film by Michel Franco, the Mexican director, uh, who made uh, After Lucia and Chronic. And until now, you know, he's been known very much as uh, a practitioner of a certain pensive, detached cinema and has really, you know, uh, won a lot of interest and a lot of respect. But, you know, you may not necessarily think, wow, a Michel Franco film, got to see it. This is an extraordinary film. I mean, it's he, he's really kind of upped his register in terms of intensity. So basically, it starts in those incredibly moneyed, privileged, upper-class circles in Mexico at a society wedding. And uh, a family servant comes, a former family servant comes to ask for help because his wife is ill and there's a money issue and she needs an operation. And at the same time, we realise that some sort of social 
unrest is happening in the city. And things build up very, very slowly and very, very meticulously. And then they take a very, very intense turn. And basically, the premise of the film is the idea of revolution starting in Mexico or or indeed in any very, very, um, any society where there's a massive gaps between the haves and the have-nots, which also means haves and have-nots in terms of power. And that if this revolution happens, its repression will be as terrible as its eruption. And at the same time, there's the idea that uh, in moments of great social turbulence, you don't really know who's in charge and you don't know who has the power. And above all, you know, who has the power to hurt. And it's also very much about, you know, the uncertainty of who actually has power. In, in Mexico, where, you know, the issue of police corruption and military corruption uh, has always been um, very much an issue. You know, you think of a film like Heli by um, Amata Escalante, and that's dealing with some of those uh, same issues. But it's very much a kind of dystopian vision of social apocalypse. Um, there's maybe, you might think of an element of J.G. Ballard. I mean, it's very disturbing in that sense. It has a kind of hard edge to it, a kind of mercilessness that um, is, I think, up there with uh, Mikhail Haneke. You know, I think that's how confrontational it is. That's how troubling it is. It's a very, I think, a very pessimistic film. Uh, Some might think to the point of being nihilistic. Uh, Another thing about it is that some people might regard it as an expression of you know, bourgeois paranoia. Oh my God, you know, what would happen if if the poor people, if the servants revolt? But also I think it's it's very much a film that I think probably more than anything I've seen here is very much about 2020 and the inevitability of social agitation, the inevitability and the fear of social unrest and the idea that uh, the turbulence of this year could bring about some form of explosion or social breakdown. Uh, I think it's a film that will have enormous resonances uh, in the US, uh, particularly in, um, you know, liberal moneyed circles. You know, you can imagine this film in some ways being set in Beverly Hills. And it's extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's very provocative. And I think it's, uh, it's ambivalent in a fascinating way. Um, interestingly, it, it kind of pairs very well with uh, another film, which is about the past, which also has a certain ambivalence, which is Andrei Konchalovsky's film, Dear Comrades, which is about a massacre that took place in the Soviet Union in the early 60s, when uh, factory workers rebelled and demonstrated against poor wages and against um, conditions in the Khrushchev era. And uh, KGB snipers started a massacre. And this is a really interesting film because it's very beautiful. I mean, it's brilliantly conceived. Uh, It's shot in black and white with a kind of elegance to it that's rather reminiscent of um, Cuaron's Roma, but it, it's not an over-aestheticized film. But I, I was fascinated when I saw it because the question I asked is, you know, what does telling a story about iniquities of the Soviet Union under Khrushchev, what does it mean 
in the context of Russia now. And I've heard one Russian critic say, well, this is a fascinating film because it's anti-KGB. I've heard someone else say, oh, no, this is obviously a Putin film because the heroine is yearning for you know, how better things were under the days of Stalin. I think people will make what they make of it, you know, either uh, internationally or uh, in Russia. Whatever it means politically in that sense, I think is, is in the sense secondary to the fact that it really is an extraordinary, provocative, very, very accomplished film and, you know, fantastic to see uh, you know, a real veteran like Konchalovsky, um, you know, pulling all the stops out. And I, mean, I think it's his best film in ages. And uh, I think, you know, at last we can stop joking about Tango and Cash, you know, because he's made something extraordinary here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the last thing I remember from him was Paradise a few years ago. Yeah, which I thought was dreadful. Uh, I, I just want to uh, jump back for a second to New Order because I, I also did watch that and just, you know, agree with you that it's, it's really an extraordinary movie. Um, and I found it really interesting, your comparison uh, to Haneke uh, for that film. I think he, he does manage to uh, uh, sidestep or avoid the feeling that, I'm going to say, I don't know, sadism or maybe sadomasochism that is in a Haneke film in terms of the viewing and the film experience in the sense that uh, you're you're watching something and kind of being punished for I- enjoying it while you're watching it. I don't think New Order uh, gets into that kind of um, you know dialogue with the viewer. I was so impressed by how it doesn't draw things out as things might happen in a Haneke movie or uh, you know even in a movie like 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 Helly like uh, like you mentioned. There's a remarkable um, speed to it, uh, which I, I think works on on a number of levels. It, it doesn't allow you to like luxuriate in, in, in the, in the, the, the bourgeois being showed, showed up, you know, for hypocrisy and, and, and you know, and all that. Uh, it's, it's really just shows the fast moving nature of, of such a breakdown. Um, it's kind of happening before you realize it. And also that there are no fixed points uh, in a way, um, you know, the people you think you might dismiss or the people you, you think might be the ones in power or the people who might be rebels or not rebels, all, all these things that, that come up later in the movie, um, it keeps you on, on your toes and there's no comfort whatsoever, um, especially as you say, it being a movie for our time now, it's, it's hard to find where you're going to put your, your faith into that things are going to work out. And, and New Order, I think it's no spoiler to say, is not a movie that will put you at, at ease. Um, you know, it's, it's not even... Also, it's interesting, the, the word dystopia, because it's also a movie that, uh, yeah, on the one hand, feels like a dystopia. On the other hand, feels like something that's already happened um, or happened maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, any other time where we or some other country thought they were modern. Um, and then it happened or uh, any, anything like that. I was also impressed by that. Yeah. So New Order, yeah, definitely curious to see how that's received. And I have to agree, Michelle Franco, not always a, a director I was particularly jazzed about. Mm-hmm. But in, th- in this movie, I felt it's, a, it's kind of the good, good sense of he kind of took himself out of it. I just felt like there's something almost defacing about it because there's an efficiency to it uh, that's quite impressive and, and scary uh, as, as well. Yeah. It's also been a really, really good year for documentaries. There's uh, a very nice, very unpretentious, but incredibly intimate uh, portrait of Greta Thunberg, 
uh, over the last year called I Am Greta, which uh, is just incredibly moving because, you know, you realise her absolute conviction and, you know, you realise that she was someone who will, you know, will go will go the full way and, you know, actually, uh, you know, cross the Atlantic a great discomfort uh, to say what she has to say. And it also makes you feel, you know, the absolute kind of supervillains of the festival are in this film, and they are Donald Trump and Jaya Bolsonaro, who, you know, stand on podiums, you know, uh, pouring calumny on her, and, you know, you just sort of recoil in horror. Um, there's a fantastic film, um, the final uh, work by the late British documentarist Luke Holland, called Final Account, in which he interviews the last surviving Nazis who are, you know, all in their 80s or 90s and, you know, all of whom except one say, well, yes, you know, I was on the SS, but actually the SS did nothing. And, uh, you know, some of them even say, oh, it was a wonderful time uh, and we got to do sports in, in the Hitler Youth. And then there is one man who who comes out openly and says, "Yes, this is what I did, and I will talk about it." And he has actually he actually takes part at a meeting at Vanse with a group of young people whose faces are, are blurred out. Um, and you know, he says, "This is what we did. This is what Nazism was about. This is what its effects were." And these young neo-Nazis, you know, upbraid him for um, for coming clean and, and and you know seeking some sort of clarity and 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 uh, I'm not sure if if he's seeking redemption, but he says, you know, this is what we did. This is what you need to know because you should not be doing it. And all they can say is, oh, you should be ashamed of yourself. Aren't you worried a bit about being stabbed by Albanians on, on the bus? So it's a really it's a really terrifying film. And, you know, in its sobriety, you know, simply, for the most part, a series of interviews with the people who were there. And I think, you know, a worthy, uh, at the very least, you know, a worthy footnote to uh, the work of Claude Lanzmann. Um, another great documentary in competition by uh, Gianfranco Rosi called uh, Noturno or Nocturne, which is shot over three years, I think, shot in different countries of the Middle East and talks. Uh, in, it shows vignettes uh, which add up to an impressionistic account of the Middle East as a place in the throes of permanent conflict, permanent war. Um, it's very, very memorable, brilliantly shot, brilliantly imagistic. Some of the images, some of the things we see from real life are absolutely shocking. The most eloquent images in the film are actually drawings by children who have experienced or witnessed brutalities by ISIS that they will never forget. You know, young kids drawing pictures of mutilations and beheadings. I mean, it's, it's absolutely terrifying. I think it's an extraordinary film. Uh, one problem about it is that it somehow combines all these images to, to create the idea of a sort of super zone. Uh, you know, this is the Middle East today almost as if it were one country. And I think, you know, politically it's problematic, you know, because each of these countries has different 
histories and circumstances and cultures and political realities. So the idea of boiling them down into one raises all kinds of political problems. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, it, it's an extraordinary film from yeah. someone who played brilliantly with documentary form in um, Fire at Sea. And then you've got a four and a half hour Frederick Wiseman film, you know, absolutely indefatigable uh, at 90 um, City Hall, which is in, in some ways it, it, it may be his most ambitious film because it's not just a picture of uh, the administrative structure of the city of Boston is actually kind of a portrait of a whole city and, you know, everything that City Hall does from rubbish collection to animal welfare to public housing with at the centre of it a mayor who comes across in his very modest and sort of snub-nosed, uncharismatic way as, as a kind of model civic leader who is all about, you know, getting the job done. It's, he's enlightened, he's compassioned, he talks, he listens, he's self-effacing. And you kind of think, well, you know, these are sort of civic civic ideals, which, you know, the film reminds us, yeah, you know, even in Trump's America, you know, this is, these, these ideals can still be maintained. And it's, a, you know, it's a very, you know, very factual, very detached, you know, all, all the things one that, that always says about Fred Wiseman's films, but it's, um, it does, you know, remind you that there is such a, a thing as community and mutual understanding and uh, civic responsibility. Yeah, I, I was also impressed by uh, Mayor Walsh as a figure because, you know, he, he resembles, you know, rank and file kind of um, official or something, or, you know, I don't know, an old school like police sergeant or something. And uh, as you say, the sense of community is, is real and of the possibility of collaboration and cooperation and some sort of communal endeavor is definitely something the film shows. Um, it's kind of a movie that does the hard work of showing a lot of the government in action, which, which is, I guess, part of why it uses up the, the, the time that, that it does, um, showing the different parts of the government at work and busy work and negotiation and discussion, all these things that are, you know, we've seen in past movies of his, like state legislature or, uh, you know, scenes in Monrovia, Indiana more recently. And then also I just, it's showing ideals about diversity in, in action. As, as an idea, it's kind of inherent to what America is in, in, in its actual makeup. Um, and that's also kind of a callback to uh, In Jackson Heights, which is probably uh, Wiseman's kind of devoted film about that subject, but it's also pretty prominent in this one, which is pretty interesting considering Boston is has a kind of notorious chapter of desegregation by busing. Um, and so to see the government that has kind of followed that chapter in the city's history, you know, is encouraging. Uh, a movie I'm glad will be seen by a, a lot of people since it's also like Nomadland and, and I'm not sure how many other movies uh, is at three festivals mm -hmm. this, this fall as well. I think you mentioned you saw the Kyoshi Kurosawa movie. Yeah, that's an interesting film, uh, Wife of a Spy. Um, he appeared talking about Hitchcock in Ken Chosen's film um, Hitchcock Truffaut. And uh, this is a film where he, he puts his, his uh, 
love of Hitchcock to to use is actually it's a kind of uh, historical costume drama set at the start of uh, World War Two, but it's also a 1940s Hitchcock film, Asian style. It's one of Hitchcock's kind of espionage, women in peril films. It's like uh, his answer to uh, Suspicion or Notorious. And it's about a woman who suspects that her husband is a spy and, you know, there's a kind of... Uh, interesting couple of MacGuffins in there. Uh, There's an interesting uh, sort of background story about um, whistleblowing uh, about the activities of the Japanese army. Uh, And it's about kind of doubt and suspicion and trust and loyalty and all of those themes. Um, It doesn't quite pay off. It, It sets itself up very nicely as something that's going to be more Hitchcockian than it is. You know, there there are two moments when he could absolutely have seen the suspense through. You know, there's one moment when uh, the heroine is uh, hiding in a crate and there's another when she uh, knocks over a chessboard. And, of course, you know, what gives her away is the fact that she can't rearrange the pieces in exactly the right positions they were left in. Um, those are kind of thrown away. It doesn't. It doesn't really hold together. But you know, it, it's a nice example of um, Kurosawa's versatility, and you know, it's entertaining and and an, a very elegant package, and and not at all like those rather strange, uh, dreamlike uh, sort of apocalypse fantasies he's he's famous for. Maybe, maybe it's almost as if he has a tendency towards exploring dread or, and that sort of tension, but maybe he's not going to see it through in terms of, you know, more traditional suspense structure mm. or something like that. Was there any other particular film you, you wanted to? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it's been really interesting over the last few months because I found that kind of uh, in, in lockdown, I didn't want to sort of immerse myself in, you know, the most demanding things that world cinema has to offer. So I've I've come here sort of slightly more open to, you know, films with a with a kind of more conventional mainstream form. And some of them have been very good indeed. So uh Regina King's One Night in Miami, based on the play, which is about the night in nineteen sixty-two when Malcolm X uh, Cassius Clay, as he was then, Jim Brown and Sam Cooke met is uh, a very nicely done, um, beautifully mounted, fantastically well acted piece of you know mainstream theatre, but done kind of in in weeklo, and you know the the the, the play is opened up very nicely, uh, very very compelling. I also enjoyed. Roger Michel's film for Duke, which is, you know, quite light and sort of, you know, deliberately jaunty, but uh, incredibly well done. It's about a very eccentric episode, uh, a news story from the early 60s about uh, a man, a taxi driver, um, who um, was uh, put on trial for stealing a Goya painting. And he's, he's played with wonderful brio uh, and warmth by by Jim Broadbent, and you know, I think that's going to be an absolute kind of mainstream success in Britain. But uh, very, very beautifully mounted, nicely acted, very sharply directed by Roger Michel. And the most entertaining thing here, which is uh, 
in a rather more kind of outre zone is uh, a film called Mandibles by Quentin Dupieux, um, the uh, eccentric French joker who, who's made films like um, his last film was Deerskin. Uh, he made um, famously Rubber, which is uh, about a killer tire. Um, and, you know, and he just makes these kind of goofy, like sort of high concept, you know, one line kind of crazy idea movies. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But this is about basically two idiots who find a giant fly in the boot of a car and decide it's going to make their fortune. And I can only describe it as Bunuel's Bill and Ted. Um, and uh, it's it's kind of a one-joke film, and it's a shaggy dog story, and there's a very kind of bizarre role for Adele Exarchopoulos. And it's just incredibly enjoyable and you know one of those films you see oh did i just imagine that and then you you kind of instantly forget it but then you find yourself probably sort of chuckling about it you know once once a week as you remember that you saw it yeah yeah that seems like just the thing you want to see um at at, at a festival just something that'll just let the air out of things a little bit um uh, and and um, yeah, Regina King. That's uh, one night in Miami. I mean, it seems like such a fascinating premise and, and a challenging one too. Is as you mentioned, since it is a theatrical setting, to have a kind of philosophical dialogue about the possibilities of life in America in a, in a yeah. way. Yeah, indeed. And it's also you know about you know four sort of outstanding male egos in one room. You know, I mean, it's a very very male film, but. It's um, it's done with great nuance and uh, panache. And of course, the whole thing is building up to the song that you know you're going to hear at some point, which is, you know, Sam Cooke's great anthem for the times. Uh, uh, a change is going to come. And um, by the time that Leslie Odom Jr. gets to sing this song, and he does Sam Cooke brilliantly, you know, you're just uh, you're just melting. It's um, it's very, 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 very sort of straight down the line. You know, mainstream. You know, you're in the room where it happened, but it's done with uh, with uh, you know with real, real kind of grace and energy and um, panache. We actually talked about my last guest, Sheila, about Hamilton, and uh, we're we're raving about Leslie Odom Jr. I mean, it sounds like we've talked about almost everything you've, you've seen in terms of the highlights. And what is it that uh, remains for you to see? I think Nomadland is one thing. Yeah, basically Nomadland at one point. Ah, and of course, you know, my my special personal treat, because I can't wait to see it. Every festival I have to see the new Love Diaz film. And uh, this year, um, actually, I don't know what it's about, but it's called uh, Genus Pan or Genus Pan. And um, he's actually made uh, a two and a half hour film, which is, um, you know, I guess his version of a short. Uh, apparently, he has for the first time got uh, co-production money and his next film has a budget that's supposed to be five to seven times his usual budget. And someone was quoted saying, you know, we don't know what he's going to do with this budget. And it's got, well, of course, he's going to make a film which is five to seven times the length of his usual film. So we'll, you know, we'll be there watching it for an entire, <laughs> entire week. 
But uh, this one is two and a half hours. And of course, you know, I think he is one of the great contemporary filmmakers and one of the great risk takers. And um, although weirdly, something about the relativity of, of time and film watching, uh, somehow his shorter films have always seemed longer to me than the long ones. It's something to do with you know, sinking into them and acquiring their rhythms and retuning yourself. But anyway, I'm very, very much looking forward to this one. And I can't resist asking because since you mentioned documentaries earlier, I just, I just remembered that there was also Hopper Wells. Did you have a chance? Oh, yeah. Actually, this is great. It's so. This is uh, a sort of side material uh, related to um, The Other Side of the Wind, which was the, uh, the, the the late Wells film, which was reconstructed and finally turned up here two years ago, and which, uh, you know, the jury, the critical jury is still out on, but it was a wonderful thing to see. So in that film, there is a character who's a kind of Wells surrogate called, who's a filmmaker called Jake Hannaford, who is played in that film by John Houston, And he throws a party, and one of the people you see at the party is Dennis Hopper. So uh, in 1970, Wells invited to Hopper to come over and uh, be in this party scene and to shoot a conversation with him. And basically, it's two hours of Wells and Hopper talking. And essentially, Wells is interviewing Hopper who is being Dennis Hopper and is talking about the movie he's currently shooting, which is the last movie, which is the one that we know, but they don't, is the one that is going to ruin uh, Hopper as a director and make him you know, an Orson Welles in his own way. And meanwhile, Welles is playing Jake Hannaford. Uh, I mean, he's being Orson Welles, but ostensibly he's being Jake Hannaford. So every now and then he has to remind Hopper, who he is, by saying, I, Hannaford, am asking you. And and it gets very confusing. There are moments where you could just see Hopper doing a double take and, you know, what, what's he talking about? Oh, yeah, he's not Orson Welles. He's this other guy. But it's fantastic. And it's it's uh, it's very compelling. It's, it's about, you know, age and youth, uh, experience and kind of innocence because uh hopper who's 34 at the time still comes across as being you know young and and sort of gauche and idealistic um before he has this terrible crash with with the last movie but it's it's also a wonderful document of a time again it's you know about two male egos in a room and and it, you're particularly aware of it at the end when a woman who's been sitting at the table all along tries to get into the conversation and you know they sort of barely let her finish the sentence. But it's really it's really fantastic and it also has the best joke of the festival, which seems to be completely impromptu when um, they're talking about God and um, Hopper says, "Do you think God is into sex?" And Wells says, "Well." Uh, a couple of thousand years ago, he got this little Jewish girl pregnant, and they're still talking about it. That's kind of, yeah, the, the mic, mic drop joke there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that, that sounds kind of remarkable. I love the idea of, of two people sort of staying in character and carrying out a dialogue like that. 
Well, all, all right. I, I, I think we've, we've probably uh, run through, I think, all the movies that I can I can think about um, asking. Um, any any final thoughts about, about the festival? It sounds like you're coming away from this with a, a bit of a, of a sense of, uh, of optimism. No, it's it's really nice, and you know the great thing about it is is you know you can again say to people you know at breakfast. So what have you seen? You know that's one of the nice things about it. Uh, I think it's given everyone a great sense of hope. It shows that film festivals can happen in real life, and um, you know if you take the right measures, I think everyone feels very safe and everyone behaves very responsibly. You know it might not be the same everywhere but it's they've made it work very well here and and actually you know venice this year has been a wonderful antidote to this ridiculous mantra that's been going on uh for the last few months you know will tenet save cinema well there are a lot other films apart from tenet and there are a lot of other ways to see films uh than than going to the multiplex and, and and seeing blockbusters and it's been you know it's been really refreshing it's been it's been great and it it, it is reminding us that there is cinema around the entire world and it's uh it's been given space to breathe here which has been great well that that seems a that seems a nice note for for us to, to end end on thank you Jonathan for taking the, the time i i mean i i remember well uh it's, although it seems like ages ago the last time i was in that environment um how how busy it is thanks it's a pleasure and hope uh, you know we'll both be back here next year yeah, yes yes <laughs> i definitely hope so